Lakeisha Gunter, and you're listening to Roar, an energetic and enlightening weekly podcast that will help you achieve more. This weekly infusion of candid insights, indispensable lessons, inspiring stories, and success strategies for living your best life now will help you on your journey to making your dreams a reality. My experience as a Fortune 50 business and tech executive has led me to meet some pretty amazing people. On Roar, I share real talks with top executives, thought leaders, luminaries, authors, and entrepreneurs who are passionate about building the next generation of inspired, empowered, game-changing leaders. Are you ready to fear less and move into your dream life? Let's Roar. Welcome to Roar. I'm your host, Lakeisha Gunter. So what do I mean by Roar? The beauty of Roar is that it's both an acronym, and the acronym stands for Reflection, Opportunity, Action, and Relationships. And it's an action. We are all born with it. A hidden power inside of us. It's a fire that is often suppressed by fear. That power is your Roar, and it's waiting to be unleashed. A few years ago, I was presented with an opportunity to leave engineering and lead a product marketing team for one of Intel's largest businesses, the client computing business, working for a leader who was on my dream sheet of leaders. When I told my colleagues of my plans to go work in the client computing business, specifically on the desktop business opportunity, many thought, "Mm, Lakeisha, I'm not so sure that's the right move for you. They asked me to think about the data center and cloud computing business. They said, that's the future. I appreciated their wisdom and guidance as they simply wanted me to be where the puck was going, per se, where the momentum was shifting, but I stayed the course. I knew I wanted to be a part of the efforts to drive growth in the PC business. You know, there's no checklist or chart to help you choose which path is best for you. Each decision that we must make is highly personal and situational. Only you know and understand what you want to get out of each opportunity. If I hadn't taken this path, I would have never met my guest today, Anand Srivatsan. Anand knows all about charting your own course, sometimes taking a path less traveled, taking risks, and winning big. Let me introduce you to Anand. Anand is currently the division CEO of Toby Tech. Prior to Toby, he was at Intel for 15 years, where he was most recently the vice president in the client computing group and general manager of Intel's desktop, systems, and channels group. Prior to this, he held various senior positions at Intel within sales and marketing in the United States and Taiwan, including the responsibility for some of Intel's largest customers. Prior to his career at Intel, Anand held engineering roles at CNN Corporation. He holds a master's degree in electrical engineering from Stanford University. Now, you heard me mention that Anand also worked in the desktop group. So, yes, you, you guessed it. While at Intel, I had the good fortune to work for him, and I enjoyed every moment. He creates a culture where every person's voice matters. He trusts you to lead your organizations and your teams to success, and he partners with you on the journey. I tell you, we had so much fun. What I loved about Anand was, there's so many things that you're going to find out, but what I love about Anand is he has a passionate curiosity for learning, and it's fueled by our fearlessness and a willingness to take risks that have enabled him to deliver some of the most innovative technologies to the marketplace. On top of that, He is truly one of the coolest people on the planet. And oh, by the way, 
He's got a rap game second to none. Yes, a rap game second to none. He grew up in New York and he can rap with the best of them. You're going to enjoy listening to him. So let me welcome Anand to the show. Welcome, Anand. So good to have you with us today. Thanks, Lakeisha. It's fantastic uh, to get the chance to talk to you again. Oh my gosh, I've been so looking forward to this opportunity. I mean, we had so much fun at Intel and you've moved on to bigger and better things, just taking the technology world by storm. And so I'm just excited to share your journey with my audience today. So let's have some fun. Let's launch right in. Is that okay? Absolutely. Let's go. Awesome. So listen, I know you very well, and I want to give my audience an opportunity to just to learn a little bit more about you. So tell us a bit about your background where you're from, and then who were some of your biggest influences growing up? Sure, sure. I think that's a great place to start. So again, my background, I was born in India, in Bangalore, which is Bangalore today. It's a city in the South, but I spent most of my formative years in Mumbai, which is sort of the financial capital of India. But I moved to New York when I was pretty young. I would actually say that I've grown up in New York. I was there when I was 11 years old. And so most of my formative years were really in New York when I get uh, where I got to go to junior high school, high school, college, et cetera. Uh, and so I spent the early part of my time between effectively two countries and cultures, you know, growing up in India until I was about 10 or 11 years old, and then being in the United States and specifically in New York all the way through college. When I think about the time, you know, as you asked me, you know, in terms of biggest influences, for me personally, you know, it's a little bit cliche, but for me, my biggest influence actually is my father. Mm-hmm. And my dad, you know, is absolutely very much a self-made person. He was the first of his family to go to college. He was, you know, one of five children, five of 14 children that actually survived to adulthood. Him and his siblings grew up in a village in India. Their dad was a farmer, you know, had many sort of relatively menial type jobs or sort of disparate types of jobs. He was the first one in his family to get educated. Again, being sort of the first son, he was the fourth out of fifth children. But one thing that he actually really appreciated and sort of built into our family was sort of the promise of education. And, you know, he had one of these super cliched upbringings where, you know, he read under the lights of the Mysore Palace because there was no electricity at home where he was studying. But a lot of the stories that he would share, it wasn't sort of in the spirit of my life was so hard and you guys have it so easy, but more that, you know, it was his firm belief from what he'd seen that if you got educated and you were willing to put in the hard work, you could really achieve anything you wanted. And again, he'd sort of lived that life of coming from, you know, sort of a background where there wasn't going to be guaranteed success. And he basically sort of bootstrapped himself from that to having one of the most senior positions in one of the largest banks in India, getting the chance to move his family to the United States and educate his children in the United States. So again, that was a really big part of my influence and sort of the culture that was in our family, which was really the super strong belief on education and hard work. Yeah, I love that, man. Thanks for sharing that story, right? Just resilience, tenacity, hard work, just a desire for something greater. And I love, I've been to the Mysore Palace, so thank you for that illustration. That's that's awesome. Wow. He wouldn't be deterred is what it says to me, right? By any means necessary. And so that just afforded you a phenomenal example to watch growing up. And I can see where you get that same drive and motivation from. So thanks for sharing that. So when you think back on your experiences growing up that really shaped you to who you are, you know, what stands out as a defining moment for you that really helped you find your war? Yeah, you know, you know, one thing for me, again, and I think this may be a little bit of, you know, the fact that I had the benefit of my dad's work 
as sort of my foundation. Mm-hmm. I don't think actually growing up, I was as disciplined as my father, or even though he was sort of espousing how important sort of being disciplined or working hard or education was, I actually don't think I internalized that, you know, through the early parts of my life. You know, I had a pretty comfortable life growing up, much more comfortable than what he had. And I certainly didn't have struggles just to be able to study or worry about things like food and things, some of the things that he needed to consider when he was significantly younger, uh, Mm -hmm. when he still wasn't an adult. For me, one of the seminal moments of sort of really facing myself this way was, you know, maybe this belief that I had when I was younger, and this is probably when I was 13 or 12, you know, where I really felt like I was one of the really smart kids. And that really, you know, fine, I was a little lazy, but I had plenty of talent and talent would take me where I needed to go. And I really look back at a time when I actually joined a high school in New York called Stuyvesant High School. This was a school in New York that you sort of had to test into. And they took kids from all over New York City and you went to the same school. And this was sort of the first time that I really felt like I was one of the dumbest kids in class. And it was like a shock. It was like a slap to the face that, you know, I was in this class and I think we were studying uh, some kind of advanced math and I had no idea what the teacher was saying. Uh And I really thought I was quite smart. You know, it wasn't that I thought I was dumb, but it was apparent to me that every other person in that class was way smarter than I was. And that's when I realized that not only were they smarter than me, they were actually also working harder than I was. And and so, you know, I felt like for me right around, I think I probably was 16, 17 at the time, you know, it was pretty clear for me at that point that talent on its own was not going to cut it in life. Mm -hmm. And, And I think the good news of that lesson was it wasn't sort of delivered by my dad or actually even delivered in general. It was just sort of this weird moment in class one day when I had this aha moment that where I was like, look, you know, you thinking you're smart is not going to be enough for you to be successful. There are plenty of people who are smarter than you. And those people are even working harder than you are. And I know for me, that lesson was something that I learned there. It really put me in sort of a good position going into college and sort of maybe creating a sense of work ethic, even though that, you know, generally would maybe be late for some people. It was something that I developed right at the end of high school, and it really served me well in college. But I saw a lot of other people, you know, who saw that lesson firsthand way later in life. Some people saw it when they first got to college for the first time, because in general, you continue to see, you know, the peers that you're around as you are successful and you are more capable, you end up being in an environment where the people around you are just as capable. And sometimes when those wake up calls happen later, it's much harder than to turn on your work ethic. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like it was a really good lesson for me at that point in life to learn it when I was, you know, able to maybe incorporate it, but then at a time when I was still able to change. Absolutely. What a powerful moment of reflection, right? As you began to assess the landscape around you and said, okay, it's time. I've got to make this critical. This is a critical inflection point for me. It's a critical turning point. I've got to make make a change, right? So I love it. You said talent wasn't enough, right? It was not just being smart, but it was also the work ethic. And when you combine those two is what I hear you say that the sky can truly be the limit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. Well, listen, I mean, obviously taking that uh, that mindset and that work ethic from high school onto college, landing some great internships, phenomenal opportunities. You've had an amazing career. Lucent Technologies. I mean, these are big companies, Cisco, Sienna, Intel for over 15 years. And now, oh my gosh, I still love this. The division CEO for Toby Tech. I mean, I'm sure you didn't like really, 
outline your career trajectory in a journal and say, okay, this is where I'm going to be. But you really kind of had to create your own map as you went along. Talk to me about how you did that. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, Lakeisha, and you, you know me pretty well as well from our time together at Intel. You know, I think looking back, what's absolutely clear to me is I think we tend to think about our career, or at least the roadmap that we sort of build along the way, a little bit from a reflective point of view. I think it Mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense when you look back on it. But I would absolutely be very transparent in saying that when I first started my career, I don't really think I had a sense of what a career was or really rational way of thinking about sort of a very large plan. I do think that what I started to formulate as I went through some of these changes was really a good sense of trying to at least think about what I wanted out of the particular job that I was doing at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, So for example, when I did my first internship at Lucent, it was really trying to understand what kind of work I wanted to do. Because, you know, I had this broad electrical engineering degree like you did, right? You Mm -hmm. could have been a power engineer. We could have done digital signal processing. I could have been a programmer. I could have been a database analyst. And so I was really starting to hone myself from going, you know, from a, a state where I was getting educated to really thinking about what kind of work would be interesting and mm-hmm. passion, you know, for deriving for me. And so that's, I think, in my view, sort of the stages that I was in my career, where I was really thinking about what the next step was. And then I think as I was building my career one step at a time, I think looking backwards, you know, each sort of stepping stone has been quite good in sort of helping chart a direction, which has built me to sort of get more skills and maybe be in a position where I can make more of an impact. And I think that's sort of been the direction that I've been in, but I don't think that I would have described that that was the journey I was on when I first started, because I don't believe that I have any idea that this is actually where I would be. Absolutely. No, I I totally resonate with that, right? Uh, I love what you said, really just looking at each opportunity for what it was and what you wanted to get out of each role. And they just continue to build upon each other, right? I mean, I always say nothing is ever lost. So, you you know, what you learn in one opportunity, you just apply to the next one. So, love that. You know, as you made these transitions along the journey, how did you navigate the transition successfully? I mean, each of these roles continue to build. I mean, and now the division CEO of Toby Tech, right? Did you ever have moments of doubt or people around you that kind of question your decision-making or maybe thinking, man, I'm not sure on and that's the right way to go. How did you navigate the transitions and maybe even moments of doubt and uncertainty? Yeah, you know, and I think, again, this is another one of those things when I look back, it makes a little bit more sense looking back than I would have considered that it would have made sense looking forward. One of the benefits of sort of, I think, the the narrative that my father provided, or at least the background that I come from, is sort of, you know, this focus on, you know, education, but it also is a focus on trying to minimize risk in sort of your outcomes, right? So my dad was a big believer in sort of minimizing the downside risk. And this, you know, if you talk to Indian people probably of my age now, they would call it sort of a middle-class Indian mentality, which is, you know, get a comfortable job that guarantees that you won't go hungry. Mm-hmm. And of course, the downside to that, which is, you know, it sort of limits sort of the ability to take aggressive risks because, you know, those are the things that potentially unlock substantial reward. But at the same time, it also optimizes for ensuring that, you know, you're not going to have a bad outcome after many years of getting yourself educated or stabilizing your family. So one of the things that I've seen over the course of the journey that I've been on is there's been numerous examples of sort of taking risks that I think in my true nature is not something that is a mindset that I actually believe is innate to me. You know, Mm -hmm. I really think that looking back now, you know, risk taking for me is not a mindset, but it's a skill. And it's something that I think you actually have to 
hone in on. And I think I'm a great example because my normal bias would be to not take risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly this is something even from my you know, family background, it'd be something that my dad would probably have said some of the risks that I've taken, you know, going from engineering, for example, to going to sales where you didn't have an educational pedigree to say that you were going to be successful. You know, those would be things my dad would never have done in his career. And he didn't do in his career, even though he was quite successful. But he absolutely followed sort of the company track and he was quite successful in doing so. But he didn't take some of those risks because his worldview was, you know, limit the downside as much as you can. Got it. Got it. I love that perspective, right? I mean, on one hand, you know, we often think certain people have a propensity for risk. But what I kind of hear you say is that it's a skill set that can be developed and learned over time. I would say based on experience, right? Maybe being willing to take yourself outside of your comfort zone and take that first risk and find success in it and be, be hungry for maybe the next one. Yeah. In fact, I think, you know, as I was thinking about the conversation we were having today, I was thinking about the first set of risks that I took. And, you know, I was thinking about whether my view was that you should take risks when you're younger because you have less to lose. Mm -hmm. But it's actually not that. I think you should take risks when you're younger because you have to get comfortable taking risks. And the earlier you start taking them, the better you you can get at taking the right risks. Again, because, you know, when we say risk taking, you know, we almost sort of don't talk about the other part, which is, of course, educated risk taking. Mm-hmm. Almost every risk we take is educated risk taking. And I think if you can hone that skill, you are really taking more and more educated risks. And of course, you have to get comfortable that you're going to take a risk. But when you're younger, you can start at least learning sort of the parameters under which risk taking works best for you. And again, if you don't do that often enough or you take a very long time to go do it, you, know, you just don't have that many opportunities to take risks and really get good at risk taking. You're so right. You're so right. So speaking of that. So obviously you've taken quite a few risks in your career and they've all paid off handsomely to some degree. I mean, there may be some learnings and challenges along the way. I'd love for you to talk about that, but maybe talk about your biggest risk that you've ever taken and how did it end up successful failure, but failure from the perspective I'm sure you learned. What did it teach you? Yeah. One of the interesting things is I was thinking about sort of the risk that I've taken. One, I don't know if I've had a substantial failure, but I think as you put it, I actually think in a lot of these cases, the risks themselves, even if they don't work out exactly how you would expect to work out, there's a lot of positive learnings that you can get out of it. You know, for me, I think the most maybe substantial risk that I've taken was a combination where I was taking both professional and personal risk. You know, in hindsight, it may have been actually quite foolhardy. I decided to sort of leave the job that I was in at Intel, where I was, uh, you know, running sales for technical sales for Cisco in the Bay Area, and basically go to a job with Intel in a different area of Intel's business. You know, I was focused on data center and communication sales at the time. And then I went to focus on personal computing as well as a little bit of data center, but really based in Taiwan. That aspect was sort of professional risk, where I was leaving sort of the set of relationships I built in the United States with, you know, management there, you know, I had relationships, obviously, with the customers that I was calling on in the US, it was going to be a whole set of new customers that I was dealing with in a culture that was different, uh, obviously, Taiwan versus the United States, and with a management that was new. But the other aspect of the risk was actually was my wife and I were going to have our first child. And so we were about to be parents for the first time. And we were signing up to take a six week old across the world away from all of our you know, sort of personal relationship safety nets that we Mm -hmm. had built in California. 
And I think, you know, if I really knew how hard it was to actually have a child or, you know, have a young child, I probably in hindsight would never have done it. But of course, right. <laughs> I had the benefit of no experience. So we, we decided to make this move with a six-week-old and go across the world. Uh, and it was honestly some of the best times of our life, both professionally and personally. And I think what it sort of cemented for me, you know, in hindsight was the fact that I think we absolutely undercall how resilient we all are mm -hmm. uh, and how much risk we can actually take. And sometimes we tend to focus on the things that can go wrong. And we don't think about, you know, our coping mechanisms that we've built across, you know, our life. I mean, we go through challenges every single day, but sometimes we don't, we're sort of blind to appreciate the learnings we have built up because some of them aren't obvious. And so I think, you know, looking back on sort of, you know, our uh, time in Taiwan, you know, there was a lot of personal growth that we had to go through. We had to put ourselves in a position where we had a young child being parents for the first time, you know, dealing with hospital systems we didn't understand. And, you know, it actually was just fine. And the sky did not come falling down. Uh, <laughs> and so I think those are things that I think uh, we tend to overcall a little bit. I love it. Love it. Yeah. I mean, definitely you all were transitioned from California to Taiwan, not knowing a soul, so to speak, right? And to your point, the systems, I can't imagine. He's a, coming from the U.S. and going to Taiwan and having a baby in a totally different environment. But to your point, you figure it out. You're resilient. You guys, you, you probably pulled on strength and you didn't even know you had to kind of get through and, 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 and actually have a phenomenal experience over in Taiwan. So speaking of that, right, because, you know, you could have had probably any job in the United States, but you decided, hey, we're going to go to Taiwan. You know, when I look at your accomplishments, not even just with Intel, but all the great companies you've worked for. It seems that at times you've taken a path that might have been less traveled, right? Or might have been off the big beaten path, so to speak. Talk a little bit about, you know, a time when you stood at the crossroads and you chose that unpaved path or a path that maybe others thought you shouldn't follow. Yeah, you know, I think I've had maybe sort of the good fortune in some cases of being crossroads sometimes without my choosing. I think the first one of these things was actually when I was at Siena. You know, my that part of my career when I sort of started out of graduate school and, you know, started a job as an engineer, you know, it was pretty much, you know, straight and narrow at that point in time, right? It was sort of very much in line with what I'd done my master's degree in. I was sort of in optical engineering. I sort of had moved you know, into the company, taken a couple of different roles where I was getting more exposure from an engineering perspective. And then we had sort of the second wave of the dot-com burst where all of a sudden telecom companies were getting impacted as well. And the company retrenched from California and was moving to Maryland. And they'd given me a chance to go with them to Maryland or you know, effectively get laid off. And so I was sort of at this crossroads. And what I was starting to come to grips with was the fact that I didn't really like being an engineer and being so focused where I didn't get the opportunity to see the big picture of mm -hmm. the company. And that was something that had sort of changed over time as the company had morphed from being a smaller division that was a little bit independent to being more of this mid-sized company. But I had some questions of, you know, so what am I going to do about sort of changing where I operate? And again, I'd been, you know, educated as an engineer. All of my jobs up, up until then were sort of engineering based. And I had this one salesperson who had called on me and, you know, she was like, hey, I think you'd be really good in sales. And, you know, it seemed like completely unreasonable. I had no idea whether I could be successful doing sales, what it would take to do sales. But I, I sort of thought, well, in this crossroads moment, it would be a good opportunity to at least try to see if I could get a job doing sales. And for me, I think it, it sort of took two things. At the time, as I said, you know, there's a bunch of people who said, hey, you know, you've got this master's degree from Stanford in engineering, sort of letting that go and going to sales seems like a, you know, big risk and giving up some of these sort of 
hard one, you know, specific degrees you can point to. But when I sort of went down that path, I think what I saw there was the opportunity to do something different that I think, you know, really unlocked some of the capabilities are already built in learning engineering and putting into my job, right? At that time at Siena, I was sort of learning what it takes to build a product and really think about how to drive success from a business perspective. And it was something that from the engineering side wasn't really a part of the, my skill set that I could use. And so when I had this opportunity going to Intel to do sales, it was absolutely something for me that was the path less traveled, but it unlocked an opportunity to go sort of to the business side without having to go the traditional route, which would have been, you know, go do an MBA, maybe go down and do product management after that. It really gave me a chance to do something that I would have said most people would have said would be a path or a jump too far, right? Going directly from engineering to sales. And actually one of the most interesting things there was when I took the job, I remember talking to my manager at Intel at the time and saying, you know, look, Sean, you know, I don't know if I could do this job. Like, you know, I'm not sure if I would be good at sales because I feel like I have no control on the output. You know, right. I know how to be a good engineer. I don't know how to be a good salesperson. You know, the response, and I think it was a great response from him was he goes, look, you know, we're Intel. We know how to train good employees. Don't worry about it. If you're smart, we'll figure out how to make good use of you, right? And it allowed me to sort of put my head down and really focus on learning. I love that. I love that. Awesome. So that that transition to engineering and sales really just gave that business lens and opened up a whole new world, right? I mean, from a career perspective, I think, because that that just continued to move you forward in the business sense, right? Yeah, I think that's absolutely one part of it. I think the other thing, of course, is it's quite different type of work, as you've seen, mm-hmm. I think, in your role now, as well as what we were doing on the desktop side. I think, you know, when you're sort of in the commercial part of a company, whether that's sales, whether that's, you know, product management and you're customer oriented, you know, the kind of day-to-day work that you do and what you're actually trying to deliver to go and create value is substantially different than engineering. But that can be super helpful in making a company successful. Absolutely. Because somebody who sort of brings that product knowledge, if you can marry that with sort of customer advocacy and, and sort of that customer sense, I think it can be really, really powerful in companies. Absolutely. Totally agree with you. Totally agree with you there. You know, talk about, you know, obviously, like I said, just a phenomenal career in the last 20 years or so. And, and given all that you know now, based on the experiences that you've had, the lessons you've learned from others, you know, what is some leadership advice that you would give to a younger version of Anna just getting his start at the beginning of his career? For me, I think there's a couple of things, at least I, I would give as advice, uh, you know, to somebody who's sort of starting their career. One, I think it's it's really important to pick good managers. I think that's one. And I think the part of that is I think a lot of the leadership style that you end up developing, I think, is honed by the people that you work around and the people you learn from, you know, almost implicitly without it sort of being something that is, you know, didactic and sort of here's a leadership lesson. But for me, what I had, I think, the good fortune of was both in Siena in my early parts of my career, as well as several parts of Intel, I had managers and leaders who were really upward looking. You know, they were people who really wanted, you know, empowered by nature. You know, it was something where they were looking to do bigger and better things. They wanted people who would challenge them and try to push the boundaries and really, you know, were able to build a team of, you know, rock stars because they were willing to let the rock stars, you know, be as great as they could be. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that there are other leaders in some cases where that is absolutely not the norm. I probably had the sense after my first couple of managers that every manager operated that way. You know, that right. they weren't micromanagers, that they were like off climbing their own mountain and they were going to let you climb your own. 
But I think there's certainly managers who are the other way. And I think it's quite important that you pick a manager who's willing to empower you and somebody who's willing to give you trust and willing to let you make mistakes, because I think that's where you truly learn. And I think if you are in that environment, I think you can then be the kind of leader who can empower you know, the future set of leaders in the organization, the future people who are going to be looking up to you and saying, how do I build a career like you have? Love it. Love it. I mean, that's why I had so much fun working for you. <laughs> okay. And I think we had a blast with you for GB, right? Because that's just that's exactly what he did. I mean, I love that. Thank you, Anand. You know, to that point, right? I mean, obviously you had some great managers and you just talked about, right? The culture, the environment that one should create. You know, how has your leadership style evolved over time? And, you know, what do you know about leadership today that maybe you didn't know 20 years ago? And how did you learn it? Yeah, I think, you know, when I first started my career, I don't think I was learning these lessons around leadership and understanding that that was actually what I was learning. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I spent an inordinate amount of my time gathering skills, right? Whether it was learning how to do engineering properly, you know, whether it was debugging, you know, the systems that came back, whether it was actually figuring out how to do sales and what my job really was when I was uh, in sales. I was really focused on sort of that skill development. And I don't think I really had an appreciation for the fact that leadership is sort of, again, a different type of skill until I started to lead teams of my own. And at least I started to lead teams that were big enough that you couldn't sort of understand what everybody was doing every minute of the day, right? I mean, I think when you're leading a group of two or three people, it's quite easy to be so close to each other that, you know, in general, you have an enormous amount of influence on what people are doing day to day. I think when you start leading groups of 20 plus people, you're not going to know what people are doing. And Mm. then I think it becomes very clear that, you know, your job as a leader is to really set sort of vision, you know, sort of talk about the mission you're trying to drive to get people aligned around, you know, a common cause, try to drive priorities and make those difficult decisions and then really drive empowerment so that the team can have velocity and really maybe even out execute you as a leader. Because one thing that I think for me has become quite clear is as you become a leader, you are going to lose that confidence to make every decision and you shouldn't make every decision, right? That confidence typically exists lower in the organization and you need to empower the organization to make those decisions at that appropriate level. And that's a skill that you have to learn because you are then putting your fate in your team's hands, Mm -hmm. right? If people make bad decisions, you are accountable for those decisions because you're accountable for your team. And I think that's something that, you know, is a learned behavior for, from a leadership perspective. And I don't think I had a good appreciation for that. Probably, you know, in my view, probably for uh, maybe six, seven years ago is maybe the first time it really started to be clear to me that that was the level that I needed to operate at. You're spot on. You're absolutely spot on. So, I mean, thinking of that, right, if I were to ask you the question, you know, how would you describe your leadership philosophy today? And you've kind of given some examples of how you've been shaped as a leader over your career, but what is your leadership philosophy? And and maybe, you know, in the context of now being the CEO of Toby Tech, right? So I'm sure one of the first things your staff and your your entire organization want to know is who is honored? What makes him tick? How does he view a culture? How does he view organization? How does he view, view leadership? Talk a little bit about maybe your leadership philosophy now as CEO of, of, of Toby Tech. Yeah, you know, I think one thing for me that I think is quite important, again, something that I continue to work on because it's still a journey that I'm on, is first, you know, sort of unifying around 
you know, a clear North star, having the, the common big picture and driving a common view of our vision. Mm-hmm. So for me, I think that's something that, you know, from a leadership perspective is quite important, regardless of the size or the scope of the organization that you're driving, because I think that's one of the most important aspects of demonstrating leadership is to be able to go and pick the path and chart the course that you're trying to go get to. Uh, so for me, I think, you know, this is part of, I think the trajectory that I've been on is my natural impulse is to be sort of in this big picture kind of mode. You know, I do enjoy parts of the little picture, but for me, without a context of the big picture, I lose a lot of interest in the work that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's probably the first start of, you know, sort of what makes me tick is I want everybody to have the view of the same big picture that we're all sort of driving in, in one direction. Uh, the second aspect for me from a leadership perspective, and again, I think this is a little bit you know, my style, but I think, you know, as you talked about, you know, folks like GB who've had a big impact, Gregory Bryant at Intel, mm-hmm. I think being transparent and approachable is actually a really important leadership style. I believe that one of the things that, you know, I've learned in my time here is, you know, you want to be the kind of leader that any person in your organization can come and talk to, and you should be willing to answer any question. This is something that, you know, we've been doing, you know, in this new company that I'm in, we do something we call coffee chats, right? So I, take a random set of six people. And every week we have a 30 minute small group chat where they can ask me any question they want. And I'm very open with them where I'm like, Hey, you know, I want to get to know everybody in the organization because I don't work with all of them all the time. And I want them to feel comfortable asking me any question and knowing that I will answer every question. And if I can't answer something because it's financially sensitive or customer sensitive, you know, I will say that, but I try to be as transparent and as approachable as possible because I think that helps people get aligned to your vision because they understand that, you know, you are willing to answer their questions and explain the choices that you're making. The third aspect for me, I think that also, I think has been something that uh, I value a lot is around empowerment. And I think this Mm -hmm. is a little bit to do with, you know, being the kind of leader that I would want to work for, right? I want to attract people who are really going to take the opportunity by the horns and really run with it. And one thing that I got as a, you know, really interesting piece of feedback in my new job is one of the people who works for me basically said, you know, you're scaring the crap out of me uh, because <laughs> I was willing them, you know, willing to let them run it. You know, I was like, Hey, make the decisions. And they go, they hadn't had had that sense of freedom yes. you know, or like, I'm going to let you make your decisions and you know, it's fine. You know, you don't need to come to me for approval because you know, you're the right person to make these decisions. And I think that's sometimes unnerving if you don't have that empowerment. The first time Mm -hmm. you get it, it can be quite unnerving. But I think it's good feedback as a leader to have your staff tell you that you're scaring them by the (laughs) level of empowerment that they're giving you. You know, I I think that's, or or you're giving them, I think that's a a good compliment. I think it is. I'm like, that's a good problem to have right there, right? (laughs) Okay. I love that. And totally resonate with everything that you've just said. So, I mean, so becoming a CEO and I mean, you've always kind of had the entrepreneur mindset. I mean, as you ran the desktop business at Intel and, you know, we partnered in that effort, you know, working with GB. My question is, you know, you become that CEO in 2019, you know, you left Intel to take this phenomenal opportunity. My question is, did you always aspire to be a CEO? And, you know, when did you know that? Yes, I can be a CEO of a company, right? (laughs) Yeah, you know, for me, I actually think, I don't think I felt like I wanted to be a CEO early on in my career. You know, again, like I said, when I first started, I probably thought I was going to be, you know, an engineering for my whole career, because uh, I did like being an engineer when I first started. When I went into sales, I was amazed at how much I liked sales. I actually went into sales, again, with the thought that I was trying to get into business and that after you know two years of being able to show somebody that I could 
be in business despite my engineering degree that I would just move on to do something else. Uh-huh. But I really, really enjoyed sales. And I think if you asked me at the time, I'd have said, you know, my future would be sort of, you know, senior sales management. I think that the time that I really started to get the sense of trying to run a business was actually when I started to do product management in the desktop uh-huh. role. When I was running desktop product management, I started to see where all these sort of threads started to come together. And actually, I feel like my aspiration to be CEO really started to get cemented when I felt like the role that I had at Intel wasn't allowing me to make the kind of impact that I would like, even though it was a very large company, even though it was a very large business. I felt like you know there was only so many decisions that I could make and so much of an impact that I could drive. And I think that was when it started to really gel in me that I wanted to be in a role where I could make more of an impact. And a role like this uh, would sort of give me that kind of maybe opportunity. Love it. Love it. So talk a little bit about Toby Tech, right? I mean, and some of the cool things that you guys are doing as CEO, if you can, right? I mean, just at a high level, right? You, you yeah. were already doing some amazing things and now you're over here. I'm leader in eye tracking. You know, talk a little bit more about what you guys are doing. Yeah. To- Toby Tech and Toby as a company is actually a pretty phenomenal story. Uh, the company has been around for 18 years. It started in uh, Sweden, the uh, early parts of the 2000s. And the interesting thing is when these folks started this company, a bunch of them were just out of university, they thought they had invented eye tracking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it turned out that they hadn't, of course, and that eye tracking was around for 50 years. But what they had actually come up with was a much more scalable way to deliver eye tracking. And what they had initially started out was with the, was the idea that you could control a computer with, with your eyes. That was sort of the initial intention. But as they figured out that, one, they hadn't actually invented eye tracking, they started to look at why eye tracking was actually invented in the first place. And they understood that, you know, eye tracking was actually way more powerful than just a technology that could allow you to control a computer. You know, for humans, the eyes are a huge part of actually how our brain actually senses its environment. It's like 60% of the brain is used to go and decode your visual senses. And, you know, so really what it is, is it's a fundamental way of how we actually think about attention and insight and intent for a human. So one of the big things that's actually evolved over the course of the the journey this company has been on is they have understood, they've sort of unlocked with eye tracking, the ability to really understand humans at a fundamental level, the way humans understand each other. Mm -hmm. You know, and I was sharing this with uh, Cesar the other day that, you know, we as humans actually understand this intuitively. You know, I tell my kids this all the time. I go, look at me when I'm talking to you. And the reason we do it, of course, without thinking is we know that when somebody's looking at us, they're paying attention to us. Mm-hmm. And that's actually the power of eye tracking is when you're looking at something or when you know what the user is looking at, you can actually understand what they're actually trying to get information around, whether it's reading a sign, whether it's something that they're interested in. And with that, you can actually deliver a lot of value back to the user. And this, in Toby's view, is the next part of how machines need to communicate with humans. We've seen this big trend, of course, of machines starting to communicate with humans on human terms, right? This is there with voice, you know, it's there with, you know, uh, touch, right? More Mm -hmm. natural ways of communication. But as of now, we don't sort of use the fact that as humans, we communicate to each other intent and interest with our eyes by sort of looking at something or looking at a person. So I think that's actually the opportunity that we see in in Toby, that we can bring this technology to all kinds of uh, machines and computing platforms to really enable machines to deliver more value to their user by understanding what the user really cares about. 
I love that. And I, I can only imagine the current environment that we're in with COVID-19. That's really probably put eye tracking technology at the forefront of the industry, of all technologies, because our ability to, to to touch things or want to touch things, given this, you know, pandemic, you know, we're like, no, I don't want to touch a thing. <laughs> so it's probably been a, been a good thing for you guys as well. Yeah, you know, the, the pandemic's been kind of an interesting experience for us, both sort of in how we run the company day to day, but even for our technology. On the one hand, I think it is unlocking some of these opportunities where, you know, you can use your gaze as an alternate input method and avoid sort of the dreaded touch screens that we may all be worried about, you know, every flu season going on uh, from now on. Uh, but on the flip side, I think, you know, one of the challenges, of course, we have is, you know, in this new world where you can't visit customers with a brand new technology like eye tracking, it's harder to convince people when you're not able to, you know, sort of show them the technology face to face. At the same time, I think, you know, this is one of the great things. I mean, we've become a huge teams organization because we're using collaboration tools like we've never done before. And the company that, uh, you know, that we're in now, Toby, from a Swedish perspective, working at work is actually quite the norm. You know, they don't have as much working from home as you would expect, even though it's a pretty high tech company. And you know, this COVID pandemic has really sort of opened eyes in terms of the ability of people to work from home and really be very productive. And, yeah. you know, those are lessons that I think in the U.S., you know, in, the, in Silicon Valley are pretty normal. But in a place like Sweden, it's something that's still not culturally a norm but it's increasingly becoming so because of uh, the lessons and some of the benefits I think we're seeing out of the of, of our reaction to the pandemic. Yeah, talk about digital as well as a workforce transformation, right? Everything is being accelerated because of COVID. So to your point. So, you know, what has been, I can only imagine that you've had just tremendous amount of fun and just enjoying the ride so far. Maybe highlight maybe one or two of your most gratifying moments since joining Toby. You know, it's been really interesting. I think one of the gratifying moments for me is maybe a similar vein to what I mentioned, my direct staff telling me, you know, that they were a little scared. Yeah. Uh, for me, you know, there have been series of decisions that I've had to make, you know, after I've taken this job and the kind of autonomy that you have in this role, you know, it's it does take some getting used to. All of a sudden, you know, you look around and you think about a decision you have to make and there's nobody stopping you making the decision. It's just you and the decision. Right. And that, again, for me, was a little unnerving, right? You know, <laughs> it's sort of a, you know, good news, bad news thing. On the good news side, of course, you can make the decision on your terms. On the bad news side, you get to make the decision on your terms. Right. You know? And so that accountability is absolutely clear. And, you know, we've had to make some tough calls in this company. We are, you know, not yet profitable. We're on our way there. So, of course, we've had to prioritize, you know, pick where we're going to go make investments, where we're going to retrench a little bit and focus away from. And those decisions, you know, they have real impact every single day. And, you know, the good news is those decisions were on my desk. I was able to make it. The bad news is they were on my desk. And then I had to explain to my organization very transparently how we were making these decisions. How are we improving sort of how we operate as a company to be more predictable and be more successful? And, and those things, I think, for me, they've been, you know, truly a great learning experience for me. And it's really, I think, cemented for me the reason I took this job. Uh, because I really felt like I was going to, again, acquire a set of skills that, you know, in Intel, it was just not in the purview of the roles that I would have had in any part of the company, just because, you know, in Intel being so mature, there are people with those specific areas of expertise that would take those decisions. You yep. know? And so it's something that you would maybe see a peer of yours make, but you wouldn't understand some of the nuances of what goes into making those calls. 
I love it. And now you you said the buck starts and stops with me, right? (laughs) Right. I love that. So what advice would you give someone who's about to become a CEO for the first time? I think one of the big things, again, is, is really having good clarity about what your job is and what you're trying to do in the role that you're in. I think, you know, spending some time before you're in the role, you know, thinking through that, I think is quite important. And I think this is actually true pretty much, you know, throughout your leadership journey. A lot of times we end up doing a, a job that is not the job we're in, but maybe the job that's sort of one level below. So I think as somebody who's starting out to be a CEO, I think your job is really, again, to set the vision for your company and then to really make priorities and then make sure that the priorities and sort of what you actually do match where you're trying to go. I think being transparent and having integrity to the direction you're trying to take the company and making sure sort of all the micro decisions you make line up in that direction is super critical, I think, when you become a CEO because the entire organization is watching you. So sometimes, you know, we, we it's it's quite easy to say, hey, we're going you know, east, and then you start making a lot of decisions that sort of don't support that, you can't sort of hide from those decisions when you make that kind of judgment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm telling you, this has been so phenomenal. So we could talk all day and I know I've got to let you go, but is there anything else I should have asked you that you want to share with the audience today? You know, I think, I think we had a pretty good discussion. I think the the thing that I, the, the last thing that I would share is I think one thing you know, looking back, one thing that I feel that I've learned a lot on is a lot of times I think we tend to think that the risks that we're taking are bigger than they are. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I think one thing in terms of sort of honing your risk-taking skill is to really compartmentalize what the impact of a risk is. In some of the big risks that I've taken over time, you know, they seem big again, you know, putting myself in the shoes of where I was at the time or what could have gone wrong. But, you know, I think I did sort of go into that with some level of educated view on sort of what the downside was of the risk, right? And especially, I think, as you go down your career, you have options. You know, if you take a job that seems risky, it's not like your career is over, right? You have the ability to take another job if you think that that's not going to work out. And so sometimes I think, you know, it's quite important to really get good at compartmentalizing the risk that we're taking. We tend to, I think, overblow how much risk we're taking. And that sort of stymies your ability to actually take that leap. That's what I would say that I've learned, I think, is, you know, taking these risks, I think I'm getting a lot better at taking bigger and bigger risks. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I totally resonate with that. So let's wrap up with the fun lightning round of questions. So I'm going to say a word or a phrase and you tell me the first thing that comes to mind. So as I said earlier in my introduction, I'm like, his rap game is on point. But in any case, right, when you think about hip hop and R&B, maybe what song uh, changed your life or gave you life? <laughs> I would say it's uh, probably Biggie, and it would be uh, you know uh, Biggie and Tupac are probably my favorite rappers. Of all I time. love it. I love it. So pick a side: East Coast or West Coast rap, <laughs> and I'm why? From New York, I'm gonna have to pick. Uh, East Coast, <laughs> but I feel like you know the family needs to be united. I know that's right. Okay. <laughs> all right. So what's your favorite food if you have one? Favorite food would probably be Indian, followed by Thai. Yes. I, I love them both. I love them both. Guilty pleasure, if you have one? Chocolate. Yes, 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 yes. And maybe your favorite book or a book you're reading right now? You know, I really am reading the Expanse series right now, actually. So I'm waiting for the last book in the series. This is by an author, James S.A. Corey. It's a space opera. I find it actually an incredibly well-written book or series of books. Awesome. Good deal. 
Well, listen, my friend, it has been an absolute joy and pleasure having you on the World Podcast. You have to come back again, but I want to make sure that my audience knows how to find you. I mean, obviously they can Google you and look up Toby Tech and they can find you. Any other places you want us to make sure we highlight LinkedIn, your website, how can they stay in touch and see all the cool things you're doing? Yeah, I think uh, LinkedIn's a great way. I think, you know, we actually have a fair share of exciting news around the things we're doing on Toby Tech, uh, being where we are sort of in the forefront of bringing this technology out. I think the stories we have and our tech and our, and our customers are able to go create with our technology, I think is pretty exciting. Awesome. Great. Well, we'll look forward to staying in touch. Thanks so much, Anna. Awesome. Thank you, Lakeisha. All righty. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Roar. Tune in next time for more awesome talks with people at the top. Don't forget to subscribe and share so you're the first to know when our newest episodes are available. Until next time.